All right, good morning. Uh, if you're new, I'm Pastor Brent. Good to be here. And we're nearing the end of our series in the Gospel of John. We're now entering the climactic moment where Jesus is arrested, tried, and crucified, and seeing the redemptive work of Christ and the the confrontation he has with the world kind of now coming into focus. Now, um, let me just say at the outset here, I don't typically do a lot of sports illustrations in my sermons, but if you know me, I'm incredibly competitive and really enjoy sports. But so maybe just indulge me just this once. Uh, and I see a Packers jersey over here. <laughs> just thought I'd point that out, just sorry. Well, since today's the start of the NFL playoffs, in order to make all of you Vikings fans feel a little bit better, sorry to bring it up, I thought it would be appropriate to tell a story about the Vikings quarterback, Kirk Cousins. Yeah. Now, Kirk is a committed Christian, and he's not shy about sharing his faith and telling others about the gospel. I recently watched a, a film, a documentary that profiled Kirk Cousins and as well as some other NFL players and coaches. And in this very self-aggrandizing environment of the NFL and, and in this, this film, this documentary that included some not very savory characters using some colorful language, Kirk embodied a totally different approach and a totally different sense of the integrity of his character. In the spotlight of professional sports, you know exactly what he stands for. Now, as you uh, football fans know, the Vikings had tremendous success last season. <laughs> they were 13 and four. They had won a division title. They had the longest, they had the largest comeback in NFL history in a single game, being down 33 points at halftime and coming back to win. And this meant there was so much pressure on them as they go into the playoffs. And as the quarterback, Kirk felt a lot of this pressure falling on his shoulders. Now, it was pressure to win for the team and for the city, but he also knew that this was an opportunity that he had worked hard for since he was a kid. He'd been in the NFL for 10 years. He's in his mid-30s, which is old for the NFL, okay? And then at this point in his career, the stakes were high for him personally. Now, as you probably remember, one year ago, almost today, like to the day, the Vikings lost to the Giants 31-24 and were eliminated from the playoffs. Sorry to bring it up again. <laughs> but this documentary I was watching captured this entire event from Kirk's point of view because he was mic'd up and there was cameras following him everywhere. And so after, after all of the event uh, finishes, the cameras continued to roll as Kirk finished his post-game press conference, his TV interviews, and he said goodbye to his teammates and coaches. And he got in his car and he drove home with his wife from U.S. Bank Stadium. And when they arrived home, his babysitter had their three-year-old and five-year-old boys in the bathtub. And as he walks in the door, of course, his kids have no idea what their daddy just endured on primetime television. And one of his boys came running up to him, smiling, wrapped in a bath towel, giving his daddy a big hug. And suddenly, what matters, what really matters most, came into dramatic relief against the failure that he had just experienced in that game. And you could see something as you're watching this, you can see something change in his countenance, something shift in his mind, this uh, a long-remembered, long-believed truth came flooding back into his mind. He knew he had a responsibility to his boys to model where his hope truly lies when you experience failure. 
or when you wonder if you'll ever get that chance again, or when the world seems it's crashing down on you. So this is what he did. He went into his son's bedroom, read him a book, and tucked him into bed, and they prayed together, and they sang the song that they sing every night. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. As you're watching this unfold, against the backdrop of all these other football stars who are seeking fame and money, they want to win at all costs, captured for the world to see is a man who literally sings aloud to his son the truths that he needed to hear at that moment. There is no other solid ground than Christ. All other things are sinking sand. So open with me to John 18. We're going to be seeing this unfold even in our text today. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to have you follow along here with me. We're going to be in John 18, starting in verse 28. And we're going to be reading through verse 40. Now, last week we focused on Jesus' arrest and his trial before the Jewish leaders. And this week we're focusing on Jesus' trial before a Roman authority. So he's literally engaging with the powers of a worldly kingdom, revealing the truth about the supremacy of his own kingdom and his sovereign reign as the son of God. Yet he's still being rejected as he takes one more step towards the cross. So let's read our passage this morning and hear about Jesus's trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. So we're going to pick it up here in verse 28 of chapter 18. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went, then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? 
They shouted back, No, not him! Give us Barabbas! Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. One thing, as we look at this text, one thing we're going to see as this story unfolds in this passage, and then as we go into chapter 19 as well, is the intensification of the opposition to Jesus. At every step of the way, it gets more intense. While at the same time, we're going to see more and more clearly Jesus' unique power and sovereignty in going to the cross. So this passage is a multi-part conversation between Pilate, the Jewish leaders, and Jesus. And what we're going to do is see three different parts of the text. First, Pilate confronts the Jewish leaders, verses 28 to 32. Then we see Pilate attempt to interrogate Jesus, verses 33 to 38a. And then third, we're going to see Pilate go back to negotiate with the Jewish leaders. So that's kind of how we're going to tackle the passage. Following Pilate as he confronts the Jewish leaders, interrogates Jesus, and then goes back to negotiate. All right. So let's jump in. We're going to use that to kind of flow through the text here. All right. Pilate confronts. Now there's an interesting spatial dimension here. It's not an accident in how the characters are positioned and how they move and what they do in this passage. Now we see the text organized around the movement of Pilate as he goes outside of his palace to talk to the Jewish leaders. Then he goes inside to talk to Jesus. Then he comes back outside again to talk to the Jewish leaders. Now there's a Another, there's a spatial dimension here that illuminates the intensifying rejection of Jesus by his own people. If you notice, they're even in two different physical places. Go back to verse 28 and look at how this, how how John communicates this. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to eat the Passover. Okay, let me tell you what's happening here. Jesus was brought from the Jewish high priest first. He he went to the Jewish high priest first, and he went into his home and, and had that interaction. And then, and that's earlier in chapter 18. Now he's brought before the Roman governor, and Jesus is led inside Pilate's palace, presumably bound and under the supervision of Roman soldiers. But the Jewish leaders stay outside the house. So here's the moment of separation. The Jewish leaders and the Jewish people gather outside in a crowd while Jesus is now alone inside the palace of the most powerful representative of a worldly kingdom in that region, the representative of Rome. Now, did you notice the reason why the Jewish leaders did not want to enter Pilate's palace? Did you see what the text said there? It said they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. They wanted to be able to participate in the festival. Now, let me share a little bit of background on that, because this is really kind of nuanced here. The Passover was not only a single meal with specific symbolism to commemorate God's deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. It was also a seven-day festival in which pious Jews needed to remain ritually clean in order to participate for the entire seven days. 
Now, Jewish law made provisions for ceremonial washing at sundown if you had dealings with Gentiles in public. So like, let's say you had to do something that caused you to be ritually unclean during the day. You could be cleansed, go back to the festival, and continue to participate. But Jewish law declared that a Gentile home was a place that would make you unclean for seven days, not just one. In other words, if these Jewish leaders went into Pilate's household at this moment, on the first day of the festival, they wouldn't be able to participate for the entire seven days. And yet they were willing to send Jesus into Pilate's home. Cutting him off. Whether or not the trial was successful, he would be cut off for seven days, wouldn't be able to participate in the Passover festival, cutting him off from the very symbol of God's redemption, God's sovereignty, and God's power to save. Okay, don't miss this. There's this divide that opens up in front of us in this text. There's a fundamental shift in the meaning and fulfillment of the Passover. You have the sort of the real fulfillment of the Passover in Jesus, and then you have these Jewish leaders who just want to do all the rituals. Okay, listen, the Jewish leaders wanted to remain ritually pure outwardly, even while they harbor sin in their heart and have words of betrayal of the Son of God on their lips. And yet, the climactic and final Passover lamb himself, Jesus, the Messiah, to whom the Passover meal symbolically pointed to, that he's fulfilling, he is here providing perfect redemption. Walking to the cross to be the sacrifice for the people. The very blood that then covers us. That, that the very meal people are celebrating is pointing to. You see, friends, the Passover story, it pointed back to God's deliverance from Egypt. But it equally pointed ahead and symbolized the perfect and final redemption when God himself would again come to deliver his people from the bondage of sin itself. And so here he is. The Passover lamb, Jesus, is here, and yet they reject him. Jesus' substitutionary death is the fulfillment of all of it. And his death is the satisfaction of everything the Passover was pointed to. And in this passage, the Jewish leaders turn their back on him, and they head off to their rituals and legalism, missing the entire point of the feast that they're celebrating. Do you see this chasm that opens up between Jesus and the Jewish leaders? And so now, if we go back to this confrontation, that's a little bit of that background. Look at the confrontation now between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. It's it's ironic the way that, that John portrays this scene. Pilate, in verse 29, opens the proceedings properly, asking for a formal charge. Do you guys remember last week when we looked at the story with Annas uh, uh, interrogating Jesus, that he was breaking protocol? He was, he was directly questioning Jesus with no charge, no evidence, no witnesses. And here Pilate is showing that he is more committed to justice than the Jewish leaders. They want to skip all the witnesses and evidence. They want to execute Jesus as quietly and as fast as possible. Now, Pilate, you have to understand, he did not get into the role that he's in as governor of this region of the Roman Empire on accident. He's a shrewd guy. He can see through these kinds of things. He saw through their deception. 
And so he tells them to take Jesus back. Try him by your own laws, he says. But they object. They, they, they reveal their real intention. They simply want to kill Jesus. But they have no power to sentence Jesus to be executed. Now, you have to know, in the historical moment here, this was because Rome formally took over Israel in AD 6 and installed a governor. And at that moment, they took away capital jurisdiction from this region. And so typically what the Romans would do as they come in and conquer your nation is as they install their own governors and government, they take away the ability to execute criminals because it's one of the most powerful tools that that government can wield. And so at this particular moment in history, the Jews did not have the right under Roman rule to do executions, which typically... For the Jews, had they been able to do that, would have been by stoning. But John tells us the reason for all of this. He says that this is all fulfilling God's plan. In the fullness of time, Jesus is being tried at a moment when the Jews cannot execute him. Again, would have been stoned. Rather, they need to not only find him guilty according to their own laws, but they need to find that they can convince Pilate alone who has the authority to execute Jesus at this historical time, and the Romans execute by crucifixion, fulfilling Deuteronomy 21, 23. Anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. And also fulfilling Jesus' own words in John 12, which we've read before, that he would be lifted up for our salvation. And so John points this out so that we will see those fulfillments here. Okay, that's the first confrontation that happens between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. Now we see Pilate physically go into his palace to interrogate Jesus, or so he thinks. Okay, so let's go to that part now where Pilate interrogates Jesus in verse 33 and following. Okay, let me read, picking it up in verse 33, what happens here. Then Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did, you talk to others, did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And then Jesus says these most important words. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Okay, listen, apparently the charge brought by the Jewish leaders was that Jesus claimed to be king. Now, this was strategic on their part because anyone who claimed to have political authority and who would gather a large crowd of followers would be considered an insurrectionist in the eyes of the Romans. This was a capital crime for them to say, this guy's claiming to be king to Pilate means, hey, you know that he deserves the death penalty, right? Now we see, here's where we see more clearly the reality of Jesus' kingly authority in the face of a worldly authority. There's two things I want to point out about this interrogation, okay? The first is that Jesus is in complete control. Do you remember this from last week as he's talking to Annas, as he's talking to the various people that he's interacting with in, his, in, in the garden? 
Okay, we see Pilate trying to ask questions, and Jesus returns his questions with a question. In the same way, in the arrest in Gethsemane, in the trial before Annas, Jesus sort of turns the tables here, and he seems to be in complete control of the situation. There's a, a New Testament scholar, Don Carson, he says this, he says, Jesus, as it were, becomes the interrogator. The prisoner has become the judge. Okay, that's the first thing to point out, is how this unfolds. Okay, second, we see in Jesus' response a widening of the scope of his kingdom. Pilate begins by asking if Jesus is king of the Jews, even getting frustrated with his response. And he claims, am I a Jew? Your own people handed you over to me. Don't you realize what's going on here? See, Pilate is operating through political jurisdictions, ethnic boundaries, nation states. He's saying, don't you realize that I'm in control over the Jews? I could kill you. And Jesus goes from those territorial, ethnic, political boundaries and goes to a cosmic level. His reply widens the understanding of his kingdom, revealing that the scope of his sovereignty and his, the essence of his kingship are cosmic and eternal. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It is grander. It's ultimate. It touches every square inch of creation. You see, Jesus is not merely trying to unseat Pilate to control a region of the Roman Empire. As though that were the threat. I want you to see the word that's used here for kingdom it's the Greek word basileia. And the, that, that word emphasizes the reign or sovereign authority of a king, not so much the territory. So we're not talking about territorial boundaries as much as we're talking about the rule and reign, the authority that is exercised. So Jesus is not so much talking about the location of his kingdom. Rather, he's talking more about the source of his kingly authority, which is heavenly. It supersedes all. And he's talking about the reality that his authority is breaking into this world. That he is the Lord and King of everything. Friends, I need you to hear this. As we look at these words that Jesus speaks here, they are earth-shattering. Historical, like historically speaking, this is the pivot point of everything. The claim that he's making is universal. You need to hear this. True salvation cannot come through a king or kingdom that is of this world. Listen to me carefully. And friends, we are in the, entering in 2024 in a political season. I need you to hear this. There is... No ultimate hope, ultimate salvation, peace, rest, all the things that we desire as, as we look at our lives, as we look at this world, ultimately cannot come through a worldly king or worldly kingdom that is of this sinful, cursed, broken, lost world. We need a redemption that comes through a heavenly king bringing his heavenly reign into our broken and evil and sinful world. That's actually good news. In an ultimate sense, that's where our hope lies. Even as we participate in the many times 
broken and flawed systems that we have in our governments. Now, I want you to see this as Jesus widens the scope of his kingdom, okay? In verse 37, Pilate presses Jesus farther. He says, you're a king then, okay? He's like, okay, you're admitting, right, to this charge. And here Jesus explains his mission, all right? Look at verses 37 and, and following here. Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Friends, you got to hear this. If you're on the side of truth, you're on Jesus' side. There is, and I want you to see this. This isn't a mere philosophical platitude. He's not doing philosophy. It is a statement of exclusivity. In other words, knowing Jesus is knowing the truth. He is the clue to history. He's the Lord of all, as missionary Leslie Newbegin would say. So I don't want you to miss this, okay? Jesus' statement in this moment is about truth is an evangelistic appeal. Do you notice the undertone there? He looks at Pilate right in the eyes and he says to Pilate, I'm inviting you to come to the side of truth. Listen to me. And Pilate looks him straight in the eye and laughs in his face. What is truth? He says. And he walks out the door. Jesus here even calling the Roman governor to account for who he is as king. Okay, let's see what Pilate does next. Remember, we're watching him sort of move spaces here. So he's outside with the Jewish leaders. Then he goes inside to interrogate Jesus. Now he goes back outside to negotiate. Picking it up at the middle of verse 38, going through verse 40. So it's at this moment, Pilate realizes with certainty that he's being drawn into some kind of religious squabble. He's like, okay, I don't want any more of this. He could care less about internal Jewish religious politics as long as they keep the peace. So what he does, he goes outside and he offers them a compromise. He says, I'll release to you one prisoner. That's our custom. You get to choose. Now, did you notice here the fact that Pilate ask them if they wanted him to release, and our Bibles, in my Bible, has it in quotations. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He's saying this ironically. He's saying this as a dig. He's saying this to get under their skin. He, they expressly forbid, these Jewish leaders, that Jesus would be called a king. This was, in fact, their charge against him. And here's Pilate, in all of his pomp, he steps out onto the portico of his palace. He overlooks a growing crowd of these Jews who are assembled for the Passover and these Jewish leaders standing in front of him all decked out. And he looks at them all and mocks them publicly. Would you like me to give you your king back? That's how much he thinks he's in control in this situation. And look at what they say, verse 40. They shout back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Hey, don't miss this, okay? They say, give us Barabbas. We know from the other gospel accounts, as there's a little bit more color here on who Barabbas is, he's actually guilty of insurrection. 
All right. He, he had, he had already convinced, he was already convicted. He, this was the same charge being levied against Jesus. But Barabbas had taken part recently in a violent uprising, likely killing Roman citizens, likely damaging Roman property, legitimately threatening the empire's rule in the city. And so there's an irony here. Barabbas is actually guilty of insurrection. Jesus is not in the mere Roman political sense, but he is, if you will, in the cosmic eternal sense because he really is king. And yet the Jewish leaders are so intent on getting rid of Jesus that they would rather have a convicted killer on the loose than have Jesus continue his public ministry of healing people and teaching about the kingdom of God. Their self-deception. 10 out of 10. Now, the irony goes deeper. The name Barabbas literally means in Aramaic, Bar Abba, son of the father. His name in Aramaic means son of the father. And, and, and this, this is what's happening in this scene that should, as you're reading this, grab our attention, shock us into seeing the intensification of the rejection of Jesus. The Jews shouted for the release of Barabbas, the fake son of the father, who attempted an armed uprising using the ways of the world to try and establish a mere worldly kingdom. And instead, they condemned the real son of the father to death, a man who would willingly walk to the cross and be lifted up as the true king who reigns over a different kingdom that is not of this world. Whoa! Friends, this... John ends this part of this text in such a way as to, as to illustrate the, the, the intensity of the rejection of the Jewish people of Jesus and to elevate the real reality of who Jesus is as king. So here's what I want you to see this morning. Okay, this passage takes us to another level. It takes this whole story to another level of, of seeing the reality of the sovereignty and authority and unique power of Jesus to save us. He is king. He is Lord. And in the face of the Roman authorities, he made his purpose clear. His kingship is of cosmic proportions. His kingdom is eternal. And his saving work is our only true and lasting hope. This is what's communicated here in this passage. Now, as we apply this, as we think about it, let me just share one more quick story about Kirk Cousins to go back to our story from the beginning. Uh, Kirk received a, uh, what's called the Bart Starr Award in 2023. And this award was given at a special event during Super Bowl week a year ago by Athletes in Action, which is a ministry of crew and, and it's given to an NFL player who exemplifies outstanding character and leadership in the home, in the community, in the field. And in his acceptance speech of this, of this award, Kirk Cousins, speaking to crowds of hundreds, reflected on his character, his career as a football player, and the ultimate hope that he has in Christ. And this is what he said in his acceptance speech. Football will one day end. And life will be based on much more than football. 
The one thing that can't be taken away from me is my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, friends, Kirk knows that he's secure in the grace of God displayed in the work of Christ in his behalf. And friends, when we trust in Jesus by faith, we all have a, a certainty of our redemption because we have a Savior who is faithful to go to the cross for you, for me. You see, Jesus Christ, the real Son of the Father, who was rejected by men, led away to be executed, he did this so that you would be accepted by God. Washed clean of your sin by his blood spilled in your place. In every step as he marches to the cross, he shows his dominion, his sovereignty, his power, his love, and his grace. See, he's our Passover lamb, the fount of all truth, the true king who reigns. If you remember the, the story previously, Jesus is the solid rock on which we stand. And apart from him and his substitutionary death on our behalf, we would be on sinking sand. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue week by week diving deeper into this account of the passion of Jesus, the walk towards the cross, we see with greater clarity, with the stark relief, our true hope must be and only can be in you. No earthly kingdom, no no other way, there's, there's nothing else in life, no other success or achievement could we possibly hang on to. It will pass away, Lord, and what will remain is God, you, and your kingdom. And so, Lord, we, we, want, to, we want to say that, that our lives, we want to be uh, uh, directed to you, that, that we want to live in the reality of your kingdom that's not of this world. And remember, our citizenship is in heaven, Lord. And so as we find our hope truly and lasting in that, this is the truth. We know the truth through Christ. Thank you. Thank you that you've given us that gift by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.